Good evening. Thank you so much for coming. I'm Teresa, and I work in the Programs and Publications Department. Um, this evening, it's my pleasure to have um, Lawrence Jackson here. Um, he's going to talk about his new book, uh, Chester Himes. And so Lawrence and I, we go way back. I remember him when he was a little boy. I have to tell that story. Him and his sister, they were, <laughs> I was about maybe about 15 or 16, but they went to school with my uh, niece and nephew. Um, of course, they're grown-ups now, but it is such a pleasure to see um, Lawrence and what he has done um, over the years. But I've asked uh, Dr. H uh, Dolan Hubbard to come and to introduce him. Dr. Hubbard is a professor at Morgan State University, and so we want to get the program started. So Dr. Hubbard, can you come forward? And he's going to introduce uh, Dr. Jackson. Thank you for coming again. Good evening, everyone. I am so glad that when I was trying to find a parking space, I had the legendary James Cleveland on plan to center me because I did not realize how much the uh, skyline has changed since the last time I was back here. But I can say that the skyline right here shares something in common with the skyline at Morgan State University. They're both changing as we continue to move forward and advance. I consider it a distinct honor to introduce to some and to present to others Lawrence P. Jackson, known to many of you as Larry, a Baltimorean who is the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of English and History at Johns Hopkins University. The backstory. I met Larry early, early in the last decade of the uh, 20th century. He attended the annual convention of the College Language Association, founded in 1937 by a Morehouse man, Hugh Morris Gloucester. And Dr. Gloucester said he founded the CLA because the MLA would not admit Negroes as members. With his newly minted BA in English from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and pursuing the MA in African American Studies from the Ohio State University, and looking like a black Doogie Hauser, he was respectful, inquisitive, and a veritable human sponge during his attendance at the largest and most prestigious organization of primarily black scholars that was integrated at his founding in 1937. With MA in hand, he headed he heeded the words of Horace Greeley, who said, Go west, young man. And he lit out for, for, Northern, for the Northern California farm and took his PhD in English and American literature from Stanford University, where he sat at the feet of Anna Rampasan, a noted biographer of Langston Hughes and Jackie Robinson, among others. This academic father and son wrote illuminating biographies of Ralph Ellison, whose classic novel, Invisible Man, that was published in 1953, is on the short list of one of the best American novels. His book, what Larry Jackson's book, was entitled Ralph Ellison, Emergence of Genius, 1913 to 1952. In addition, as many of you are aware, Jackson is the author of my Father's Name, A Black Virginia Family After the Civil War, The Indignant Generation, A Narrative History of African-American Writers and Critics that chronicles the role of the black scholars. Then 
primarily the historically black colleges and universities, including Morgan State University, where its journal was domiciled, the College Language Association Journal. Their scholarship on Chester Hines and his cohorts, including Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, and James Baldwin, paved the way for Jackson to spin the web of his critical imagination and write his new biographies. Finally, Jackson has held fellowships at, from the National Humanities Center, the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute at Harvard University, the Stanford Humanities Center, the Ford Foundation, and the William J. Fulbright Program at the Council of International Exchange and Scholars. Now you know the rest of this story, Specific, specifically the invisible footnotes. A descendant of a black Virginian by way of Baltimore in this portrait of artist as a black scholar who rooted to success led through the nation's 105 historically black colleges and universities, the foundation of the nation's black middle class. He stands before us tonight as sign and substance of the American dream in a deeper shade of blue. In the words of the man who spent some time in Baltimore tonight, all eyes are on him. So why don't you join me and welcome in Dr. Larry P. Jackson to Mr. Pratt's library. All right. Hey, hey, hey. All right. Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Brother Dolan Hubbard. I just have to uh, make uh, just one correction. As much as I would like to have a, a, a bachelor's degree from Trinity, mine is from Wesleyan. So I had to make, had to make, had to make, had to, make, had to just... No, you should apologize to the, to the Trinity people who I'm sure don't want to be classed with me. Uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I mean, as we sort of look around the room and we see so many friendly faces, thank you all for taking the time to, uh, to come out, some of you, um, twice in less than seven days, which is, um, you know, a, a, a test of endurance that none of my uh, biologically related kin could, uh, could, could, could pass or surpass. <laughs> So, so look, I will, I will, um, <clears throat> I will go very quickly. Um, I actually have more slides than you could probably sit through, but uh, nonetheless, I will be able to talk a little bit about um, the biographical work that I just recently completed on the life of Chester Himes. And what's been interesting to me about this project was that it just has never occurred to me that people wouldn't know who Chester Himes was. And so much of the response so far, I've been very grateful uh, for um, the, uh, the, I guess, the breadth of the reviews. Um, but uh, in any event, people are having the opportunity to think about the work of Chester Himes, and I think that's as it should be. Um, when this process, <clears throat> when I, you know, sort of finished what I could do, and it was in the hands of the professional reviewing public, uh, the very first thing that came back to me was sort of a, 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 a fairly disparaging review from Publishers Weekly, and they said that I hadn't, uh, it was sort of like, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 Jackson doesn't say enough about uh, the subject, and it's too much of Chester Himes' voice, and I actually thought that was exactly as it should be, and I think that um, other people have noticed really what's going on with the work, that this was a, an author whose materials and whose important point of view on what was taking place in America and elsewhere, you know, had sort of been forgotten. And I think that maybe the strength of the book is to try to bring out much of Chester Himes' own voice. 
Chester Himes was born in Jefferson City, Missouri, in a house, you know, we, we, again, we have an amazing, uh, amazing wealth in the room, a house that was uh, 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 lived in after his family left by Sterling and Daisy Brown, and we have in the room with us today people who were students of Sterling Brown, so we, you know, we sort of have this sort of marvelous connection. But um, Chester Himes' father was a blacksmith instructor at Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri. It's always important to remember that Lincoln was founded by uh, United States Colored Troops, the 66th, 65th, and 66th regiments of the USCT, uh, black men who had fought in the Civil War and then founded educational institutions specifically to make sure that ex-slaves were able to get an education. And um, you can see that Chester's family had very strong uh, middle-class pretensions and that uh, they were thinking of their sons as people who would go on to really an extraordinary future in America. You can see Chester in his christening dress. He's with his older brothers, uh, Joseph Sandy Jr. and Edward and, you know, they, they, they really had this sort of fantastic ambition and hope for the future for their, for their young guys. But um, as we all understand, you know, sort of complex uh, genealogy, one of the interesting things about Chester's family was that, <clears throat> as he later wrote, you know, he came to understand that his mother had, had, had an interesting point of view on her own heritage. And, you know, you know you can't see it very well, but this is actually like a genealogical chart that her son prepared when he was describing to some early researchers, you know, what their mother thought about her own ancestry. And she was the, um, she was the descendant of um, a couple of families in South Carolina and as uh, I was teaching George Schuyler this morning, right, and as George Schuyler would say in describing sort of a person like Estelle Bomar Himes, she was someone who, you know, um, she, one of her grandparents of, of eight grandparents uh, or, or of eight great-grandparents, one great-grandparent was of African descent. She was that kind of a person. And she was always sort of trying to, to inspire her children but especially Chester and his uh, brother Joseph Sandy, with uh, these sort of almost mythic tales uh, about their kinship with uh, revolutionary war heroes and uh, with um, sort of the best of the South. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of talk about, you know, sort of what that meant. One thing that seems to have happened is that it became a strong source of tension in her marriage. Um, Joseph Sandy Himes, her husband, was a uh, son of um, a man named Sandy Neely from Washington County in uh, Georgia. And the Neely family that changed their names uh, when they moved to South Carolina, uh, they were of, um, you know, perhaps um, uh, more... uh, uh, um, uh, robust and um, uh, volatile stock, and they resisted uh, the emerging patterns of um, not so much segregation as uh, you know you all remember from your history lessons the emergence of what the, what they called in the South Home Rule after the withdrawal of federal troops in 1876 1877. 
and um, uh, uh, Neely wanted his children to um, also to be quite successful, but they had um, no illusions about, um, you know, sort of the forebears from the other side of the color line. And it wound up being a source of tension in the marriage. In fact, sometimes Chester seemed to suggest that that was the reason why they wound up leaving uh, Lincoln. And one of the fascinating things was that both of his parents had taught at what was then Georgia Industrial College for Negroes in Savannah. And then they moved out to the Midwest or out to Missouri. And then at the... um, Around 1913 uh, or so, they went to uh, Alcorn State College in Mississippi, Lorman, Mississippi, um, not so far south from Vicksburg. And when they moved to rural Mississippi, as one might imagine, the, uh, blacksmithing was still an important craft at that, um, at that college but it was losing its value pretty much every place else, right? Because by that time, and especially on the verge of the First World War, uh, manufacturing, industrial manufacturing, uh, assembly line manufacturing was becoming standard. The automobile was rapidly uh, taking over from the uh, horse and buggy era. And Chester's father's skill was becoming outmoded. So his capacity to sort of provide for his family was actually dwindling. But this is sort of a shot of the, you know, sort of the lane at Alcorn uh, along the, the place where they lived. His mom thought that going to rural Mississippi in the, um, the, at, during the, the moment uh, where you're going to have um, Theodore Bilbo as uh, governor, um, you know, who will be taken over from uh, James K. Vardaman. Um, Vardaman was understood as the really, really vicious racist. Uh, and Bilbo, maybe uh, at least to Chester's father, perhaps, a more of a, a, a benign uh, racist, um, you know, it's hard to distinguish between the two of them today, perhaps. But um, his mother thought of this place as, you know, sort of being backwards. And she resisted enrolling Chester and his brother in school there because she didn't want them to pick up the habits of rural African-Americans. Her older son did go to school there. And then he went on to what seems like two years at Atlanta University. But with the in the fate of Edward Himes, the older brother, <clears throat> who's about seven years older than Chester, um, you could see these sort of patterns of uh, segregation in education and uh, life in the Deep South and the lowered educational standards and the lowered uh, socioeconomic ambition uh, sort of play out. And so that's a um, shot of his mother uh, in the 1930s. You know, sometimes people would say that she could pass for white as you all you know, knowledgeable audience such as yourself, as you know, this is something that sometimes it it, it just changes from from place to place, um, and the either the the hardiness or the courage of the person who is willing to try to pass, and you know what risk they're willing to accept. Um, nonetheless, Chester tended to think of his parents sort of as falling in these. Uh, sort of two categories, but what was fascinating about his perception of his parents, you know, the uh, dark-skinned father and the very, very light-skinned mother, was that he associated with his mother the tendency and the willingness to confront Jim Crow and racial injustice, and he tended to think of his father as somebody who was more submissive to uh, Jim Crow and racial injustice. 
at one point his mom took them took the brothers to Haynes Institute in Augusta, Georgia for a year because she was so disappointed with the um, educational opportunities uh, there in Lorman. And then um, they had a series of tragedies, but mainly the middle brother lost his sight in an explosion after the family had moved to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And uh, the parents are both teaching at um, what is today University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, and at that time was uh, Branch Normal College, Branch Normal Institute. And they moved to St. Louis where they had a progressive hospital. Uh, Chester believed that his brother lost his sight because the segregated hospital in Arkansas refused to treat him. And there was a more progressive hospital in St. Louis that was open regardless of race. And so the family goes up to St. Louis where they actually had some rental property and they lived there for about uh, 12 or 15 months. But um, for Chester, it was actually a, a, a moment when he sort of got lost as a really vital member of the nuclear family. I mean, they were focusing all of their energy on Joe and his dad had lost, you know, to move there. He had to give up his position. He became basically a day laborer. And Chester was going to um, Sumner High. Uh, anybody know the famous, some of the famous black alum from Sumner? Arthur Ashe. Arthur Ashe went to Sumner as well. I wasn't even going to say Arthur Ashe. Maybe we have another. Dick Gregory, who recently had his homegoing services, uh, Sumner alum, as is uh, Tina Turner. And so he's going to um, a place that really had a solid black middle class and a very, very exacting curriculum. Um, Sumner might be like the first secondary school open for black Americans west of the Mississippi. And Chester did not, I mean, he passed his classes, but he was not an outstanding student as he had been, you know, and always recognized, you know, as the the delightful, adorable son of the college professor. And here, you know, he was sort of just, you know, one among many uh, living in St. Louis. So the family decided that the best thing to do was to sort of reorganize, to regroup, and to go to Cleveland, Ohio. Now, uh, Cleveland was sort of like an outpost for the, um, the Himes tribe, if you will. And the Himes family would live with the younger sister, Fanny Wiggins, in her house on 68th Street, and uh, uh, Edward Himes's, uh, excuse me, Joseph Sandy Himes's uh, um, uh, younger brother lived there. He was a, a waiter. Um, they would all come and you know just sort of stay in Cleveland and get themselves back on their feet. And then the Moons were like the black progressive middle-class family in Cleveland, right? They lived in a majority white neighborhood. Roddy Moon, who was also from South Carolina, had served as a school principal, was one of the founders of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP. And their son, Henry Lee Moon, uh, perhaps became the most, the, the, the best recognized member of the group, 
we know Henry Lee Moon today for his work with the NAACP in the second half of the 1940s and the 1950s when he served as the communications director, but then also as a very, very prominent journalist. Uh, Henry Lee Moon, uh, you'll see a slide of him later on, but I'll just sort of say this, uh, winds up writing the book um, about the shift of power once black Americans moved to the urban north and the way now black people have the capacity to sort of uh, turn uh, national elections, right? So he was, he was also a member of um, what's called the kitchen cabinet of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, but including Mary McLeod Bethune, and uh, Robert Weaver, the uh, housing uh, secretary, or ultimately who becomes housing secretary. So the Himes decide that they're going to go to Cleveland and they will bunk with uh, the younger sister until they can sort of figure things out. And what happens is that the family um, is making the adjustment to the urban north and they have one sort of, you know, like exceptional moment when they purchase a house on Everton Avenue and they're sort of on a trajectory or in a trajectory that is very, very similar to the Moon family, right? Everton Avenue is also a, uh, you know, it's a white neighborhood in Glenville. The children are both going, even though... um, uh, Joseph Sandy Jr. is is uh, basically legally blind. The children are both going to, they're one of a handful of African Americans at a prestigious high school, prestigious public high school, and they are going to, you know, sort of try to make it as a family. But the, the divisions actually are very intense, and um, it's very difficult for the husband and wife to get along. And um, they're constantly bickering and feuding. And so one of the things that Chester does to sort of um, uh, maybe make his own independent way is that he, he decides that even though there's a clerical error on his transcript from high school, that he's going to, and he should have to repeat a class in Latin, that he's going to instead, you know, take advantage of finally graduating from high school. You know, he feels like he's like been in senior year at uh Pine Bluff, and then again in St. Louis, and now again in Cleveland, and he will, you know, sort of go on and become a doctor. He's going to go to Ohio State. And so he gets a summer job when he finishes in, like, February of um, 1926, and he's working at this hotel, the Ward Park Manor, when he inadvertently steps uh, into uh, an elevator, and the elevator car has passed beyond him. And sort of the doors open, and he just steps out into blank space, and he falls 20 feet. Um, Chester uh, breaks his arm. He shatters his pelvis. He shatters his jaw. He loses many of his teeth. Um, it is a major injury. I mean, he nearly dies. Um, he has uh, massive sort of internal injuries And he spends several weeks convalescing in a hospital where people around him are dying. Um, And, you know, he's being introduced to major narcotics. And at the end of this event, he winds up receiving a pension from the Ohio Industrial Commission. And then the Ward Park Manor also continues some parts of his salary. And what happens is that when he matriculates then to college, he's sort of this well-heeled guy who has a car, and he's got enough money to buy, you know, sort of what he wants. Because he's excused from ROTC training, um, he's not recognized as a freshman, 
And people sort of get the idea that he's an upperclassman, and he has all of this excess income, and he starts to spend it at the brothels in the, or on the east side of Columbus instead of spending his time in his chemistry um, laboratory. He tries out, uh, he's a, what we call, uh, I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm a member of a noble clan, uh, but uh, Chester Hines is an eternal sphinxman. And, uh, but he goes out for the alphas, and he you know, uh, wants to be a popular um, you know, sort of young person, right? But um, as I said, he's getting this money, and it's leading him, you know, sort of uh, not in sober, industrious paths. And he winds up being kicked out of school. And he returns to Cleveland, and he starts to gamble. Now, his parents are absolutely feuding, right? People, as you can imagine, are embarrassed that uh, the son who, you know, so much was promised or, you know, they set so much store in him, and he's, you know, been unceremoniously asked to leave by the dean, and, um, you know, he doesn't contribute to sort of the well-being of his household. His parents are at each other's throats. They lose the house. Uh, They get divorced, and Chester starts hanging out more and more and more, right? And it eventually uh, results in him committing a series of burglaries, and then an armed robbery at the home of the Millers uh, near, or it's not so far from Shaker Heights, if anybody sort of knows Cleveland. Chester goes into their house on a snowy evening in November, and he robs them of jewelry and cash. He hops a train. He steals a car. He hops a train and goes to Chicago, where he attempts to sell the things that he is uh, purloined. And he is arrested at the um, jeweler's and beaten into a confession of a crime that he didn't commit, right? I mean, he's charged with another crime at first. And then eventually brought back to Cleveland. And Chester had been arrested about three times. He'd been jailed in Columbus for a couple of months. And, you know, you just you, you saw the picture, right? I mean, he's a, um, not a... A, a, an old-looking uh, guy by any stretch of the imagination. When he goes before the magistrate, like the first week of December, they appoint a psychiatrist to check him out, and they also are talking about sending his case to the juvenile court. Something happens in the two weeks, and Chester always said that, you know, the last time that I was brought before, you know, sort of Cuyahoga County um, Court, uh, my attorney wasn't present, my parents weren't present, uh, you know, it was like uh, December 21st or December 23rd. It's like a cold morning. They brought me in, and the judge gives him 20 years. Okay. So he was remanded to the uh, penitentiary um, in Columbus, and he got a sentence of, uh, of 20 years. Right. This is his, um, one of his, you know, uh, identification cards or something. Right. Um, and if you look at the ledger and you sort of think about what was taking place on that day, it's fascinating because Chester got more time uh, than anybody else. Um, and, you know, we, I think, very appropriately are having a, a very important, hopefully it won't discontinue, an important conversation about the prison industrial complex 
But it is worthwhile to remember that uh, black Americans in Ohio, uh, you know, around between 1925 and 1930, are about 5% of the population, the total population of the state, and always in excess of 25% of the prisoners at uh, the penitentiary. And, and typically uh, towards about 50% of the people who received the death sentence, who received the death penalty. Uh, the penitentiary was a vast, uh, complex. Chester would be there from, <clears throat> from um, the last days of 1928. Um, he's released in April of 1936. He went to the London prison farm in uh, the summer of uh, 1934. So, you know, he was inside the penitentiary here for six years, and then he was on... Uh, what was understood as, you know, sort of uh, almost honorable kind of duty outside at this farm for about uh, pretty close to two years, more than 18 months. And um, prison life in the 20s was a little bit different than prison life today, though, you know, obviously there are some incredibly punitive American prisons. uh, But uh, prisoners, you know, you had to walk in these lines. Everybody had on exactly the same clothes. And infractions of the rules were met with corporal punishment, immediate corporal punishment. But um, what is actually happening, and you know, you can sort of see the debris, um, was an event that sort of transformed him and really introduced uh, to the world the um, the emerging writer, and that was the prison fire of April twenty first, nineteen thirty. More than three hundred and twenty, I think it's three hundred twenty two uh, prisoners are burned alive or die from smoke inhalation. Um, it was the largest loss of life in American prison history, and um, Chester, um, I mean, he didn't, he didn't necessarily narrowly survive. He was in a, a, a large dormitory that was not connected to the two tiers that did catch on fire, um, but nonetheless, uh, certainly, you know, there was no way to predict um, who would live or who would die. And it's in this moment when Chester really has to sort of confront, um, you know, his ideas about uh, mortality, uh, the possibility of life outside of uh, prison, uh, developing a skill so that he can understand, you know, I mean, what's going on inside of the prison, what's taking place. I mean, again, remember, he's a very young person, what's taking place uh, with him emotionally and psychologically. You know, I mean, he has this strong sense of uh, vulnerability and sacrifice. And, you know, sort of seeing all of this with the, uh, the, the life and death circumstances of the prison. And one of the things that's, that stayed with him was sort of like, even after surviving this kind of apocalyptic night, um, they called in the National Guard because the major concern of everyone connected to the prison or working at the prison professionally was that the prisoners not escape. And there was, a, there was much escaping from the Ohio State uh, pen. Um, and, you know, this is, remember, too, this is like the era of, uh, you know, Al Capone and uh, uh, John Dillinger. And uh, the, a lot of these people are sort of crisscrossing through Ohio. And, you know, there were all kinds of uh, violent uh, shootouts inside the prison and prisoners attempting to scale the walls, right? It actually happened quite frequently. But... Um, when they called in the National Guard and they started to set up the uh, uh, dormitories again and they had uh, these tents outside for the prisoners, and one morning a guardsman accidentally, I mean, I sort of trying to, I guess he was nervous or something, I don't know, um, he accidentally fires a heavy machine gun. And uh, it's a Browning water-cooled, uh, belt-fed, you know, sort of heavy machine gun. 
I don't think it's so easy to sort of accidentally pull the trigger, but nonetheless, right? And two men uh, nearby to Chester are immediately killed. And the machine gun's bullets are so powerful, you know, that like the one man is ripped to shreds and, you know, parts of his face, Chester's playing cards, and parts of his face are supposed to have landed, you know, sort of like on, on Chester's cards, that sort of thing. But he is, he is encountering, you know, sort of this, this, um, this incredible uh, sense of life or death uh, or immediate violent death, and it brings out the writer um, in him. And he actually becomes quite distinguished. Chester uh, begins his publishing career really with um, the black newspapers uh, like the Atlanta uh, Daily World and uh, the Abbott's Monthly, which was a publication put out by Robert uh, Singstack Abbott from the uh, Chicago Defender, the founder of Chicago Defender. Um, <clears throat> he is, he's got a brother by then who is working on a sociology doctorate or pretty, getting pretty close to beginning work on his doctorate in sociology. And then Henry Lee Moon is a journalist who begins working at the Amsterdam News in New York and then will be writing uh, pieces for the New York Times. So, um, and, and, and it is not known how much contact he was in with either man. It is known that neither one visits him in prison. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I think it would probably be somewhat mistaken to think of Chester in absolute isolation as he is beginning his career. But obviously the successes that he has early on you know, should be properly attributed to him. He starts to receive some of his largest successes by publishing in Esquire magazine. Esquire is a brand new magazine founded by Arnold Gingrich uh, 1932. And by 1933, they sort of have their finger on the pulse of this new quality, like American masculinity, but especially this modernist kind of American masculinity, right? I mean, this is not, I mean, you know, this would be like in the, in the magazine itself, right? Like, this is not your dad's uh, kind of way to be a man. They are promoting Ernest Hemingway, uh, John Dos Passos. Um, you're getting, you know, really so many of the major American and international writers published in Esquire, and Chester comes along. I mean, it's sort of remarkable. If you think about the pairing that inevitably comes up, Chester Hines and Richard Wright, they're separated by a year. Richard Wright is not even, he's about nine months older than Chester Hines. Uh, both of them, you know, Wright born in Mississippi and living in Mississippi until, you know, going to Memphis, then to Chicago. But Chester spent a significant amount of time in Mississippi as well. And Wright is publishing uh, the poem uh, Between the World and Me, right? It's going to come out in New Masses magazine, the communist uh, far-left uh, literary magazine. And, you know, we have uh, brother Ta-Nehisi Coates using that poem for the title of his book, right? But remember, this is going to be Richard Wright in 1934, a couple of occasional poems. But Chester Himes had become pretty much an established short story writer by that time. So, in fact, he really is the... Um, is the, uh, 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 the, 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 the initial literary voice of this group. It's not a case of him picking up the style of Richard Wright at all. Langston Hughes was also a prominent writer in Esquire. Um, they have a, uh, a woodcut of Chester Himes. One of the things that's interesting about his Esquire writings is that they are what we call white life writings, right? So they don't prominently feature black characters, and sometimes when they do, the black characters are very close to the edge of the stereotypes that someone like Ernest Hemingway would be using 
in uh, the uh, short stories that are published in the uh, uh, collection uh, around 1936-1937, to have and have not. And um, Chester, um, you know, is trying to figure out uh, what kind of writing will sell and what kinds of portraits of black people he will be able to explore. I think that black identity for him is not, or certainly the way that he writes about it and, you know, the evidence seems to bear this out. It is not something that is essential to him until really the end of the 1930s and into the 1940s. Chester's paroled. He moves back to Cleveland. Um, He starts corresponding with his cousin and with Sterling Brown um, to develop his uh, literary techniques. And he also, um, you know, sort of becomes well thought of in Cleveland He shifts somewhat and starts publishing with uh, black uplift journals and with leftist magazines in Cleveland. He gets the notice of one of the really prominent uh, writers in the U.S., um, um, uh, Louis Bromfield, who has an estate in Ohio um, that he calls Malabar Farm. And he invites Chester and his wife, Jean, to come to Malabar Farm for the summer. And Bromfield is sort of like wooing them because Bromfield has these deals in Hollywood and he's, uh, you know, getting um, tens of thousands of dollars for publishers' advances for his novels. You know, he is a very, very well-to-do writer. I tend to think that because Bromfield's close friend was Edna Ferber, the writer of Showboat, that um, – and Ferber is a a patron – um, I don't want to overstate it, but, it, you know, she is involved in some elements of the education of our own, I mean, I say our own because he's from Eastern Shore and he taught at Morgan, our own Waters Turpin. Uh, Waters Turpin's mother uh, will be working in service for Edna Ferber, and Ferber at some point is involved at, 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 with uh, some elements of um, Turpin's education. And then Turpin, too, is going to be publishing his novels sort of like at the end of the 1930s, these novels about the Eastern Shore and then black migration. But I get the idea that since Ferber and Bromfield were so close, and Bromfield is saying, oh, you know, you're promoting this guy who's like, you know, he's like Phi Beta Kappa, he's an athlete, Waters Turpin is a, you know, amazing uh, person all around he's like well I can I can do you one better I've got an ex-con you know you know let's see what's going to go on but what happens is Chester goes to Malabar Farm and they are absolutely uh, he's absolutely discouraged from writing because he's working too hard serving and uh, Chester was always very very um, um, short-tempered short-fused when he felt like he was being taken advantage of so he moves to California at Brumfield's suggestion, and he does not find um, immediate success. And part, or partly, you know, just for straight survival, um, Chester begins a very, very close association with the Communist Party. I mean, with with you know professional labor organizers and activists, and um, he is uh, traveling very much in these circles around 1942, 1943. Uh, I have just learned, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the names uh, precisely, but I've just learned, I didn't notice when the book was published, the people are not identified in the photograph. But the two people, uh, so that's Chester and his wife, Jean, and then the two people they're in the photograph with are the highest-ranking members of the Communist Party in Los Angeles uh, for the Los Angeles branch. 
But he has a turning point. I, I'm sorry, while well, I'm moving sort of slowly, is uh, too much detail. He has this fascinating turning point. In 1943, a riot breaks out, so-called riot. Remember, 1943 is our year of riots uh, across the um, the U.S. in Harlem, in Chicago, in Harlem, in Detroit, and uh, in Los Angeles. You have what are known as the Zoot Suit Riots, right? Which is a misnomer because what we're talking about is. Uh, uh, U.S. servicemen, uh, especially the Navy. Remember, the Navy is the really segregated branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, people often talk about the uh, war in the East as a, ra- or the war, I'm sorry, in the Pacific as a race war, very much uh, practiced as a race war. And you have the, um, the servicemen descending on black and brown youth, especially people that they identify as wearing the zoot suit or zoot kinds of clothes or, you know, I don't know, people who aren't like, I don't know, wearing military issue khakis or something, right? And Chester sees these, um, these street battles unfold. He's at his house with a rifle prepared to protect his, uh, his home. He's living in the home that was once occupied by Japanese Americans who have been interned. Um, Chester writes um, against the internment. And it gives him a um, sort of a freedom from the, um, the preoccupation or the uh, prerogative of the black middle class especially maybe his cousin Henry Lee Moon, who had been encouraging him or supporting him to write a novel, in some ways one that would not be so different from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, but one basically about a middle-class character coming to terms with, in an intellectual sense, um, of his you know, sort of position on race in America. And instead he writes the novel If He Hollers, Let Him Go. And he says that he, you know, he wrote it without thinking that it would be published because at its center was the strong uh, sexual tension between a black man and a white woman. Chester was also writing a lot of radical journalism for the NAACP and the Urban League Journal. And when he published this one, now is the time, here is the place, um, really, it's a, uh, a work that strongly advocates what was uh, being <clears throat> popularized among African Americans and in the black press as the victory abroad against fascism and the victory at home against fascism, the double V uh, uh, campaign. Uh, and when he published this one saying that, you know, under no terms should we join ranks with racists at this time, he said, now is the best time to promote black rights um, and to be absolutely uncompromising. And you might remember that this was sort of also uh, taking him out of the path of like what, if somebody was a good communist during the Communist Party, you good communist, you know, you sort of downplay uh, 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 civil rights right at this moment. And when this comes out, um, the FBI start to monitor um, Chester Himes, right? They start to uh, put him on the sedition list, um, so the novel is published in 1945 after Chester uh, moves to New York. Um, he, uh, you know, always sort of like was impatient and, you know, would become energized by a new environment. Um, the novel was like really, really uncompromising 
And in fact, the compromises tended to come from his own publishing company. And he was outraged that the publishers um, would make these uh, revisions to his manuscript without his permission and, um, you know, without his knowledge. And he was constantly fighting his publisher Doubleday to restore, you know, things like the, basically the near... It's it's a quite it's you're 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 supposed to wonder whether it's rape whether it's um, um, uh, a violent sexual attraction and energy but anyway the uh, the strongly sexual scenes that Chester had created between his hero uh, Bob Jones and uh, Madge. When the book comes out, uh, one of the people who review it is Richard Wright, and he and Heim sort of become friends around this point. Wright is the most famous black writer. I mean, you, you know, you could, I think you could make a, a strong argument for the 20th century. It would have to be, you know, you'd be talking about Wright, Toni Morrison, and Ralph Ellison. Uh, maybe as a novelist, uh, almost certainly you wouldn't be talking about uh, James Baldwin, though as an essayist or as a writer broadly, you know, maybe um, Baldwin might, might, be the, might be the figure from the 20th century. But Wright is selling uh, hundreds of thousands of copies of books. No black author has ever done that, right? So he has a, a kind of value and importance. He's also a supporter of black writers. He helps people get fellowships. He helps people get contracts. He actually gives Chester Himes money. Uh, when Himes was always very improvident, which Himes probably you know, just blew. Um, Chester Himes was also someone who was known to bite the hand that fed him. Uh, if you came out against Chester and you said, oh, you know, this guy is only an amateur or he's a budding novelist or, you know, this characterization is inadequate or, you know, if you had something to say about Chester, he was going to respond. And he often did so. Um, what's quite fascinating, he was often able to do so in widely distributed publications. So, you know, I mean, he was successful in defending himself. Um, Chester became very close also at this time, introduced by Richard Wright with, uh, with Carl Van Vechten, who would be a major supporter um, over the years. His second novel, Lonely Crusade, what I think of as really being maybe his masterwork, uh, came out just a few years later in 1947. Um, in, in a sense, he sort of returned to uh, maybe what was the initial project that he had underway, when he put that aside to write, if he hollers, let him go. And he decided to write a book that was going to show sort of the possibility of um, uh, social and racial transformation. But the, the, uh, the character was going to be a hero, uh, a troubled hero or a flawed hero, or you would you know, sort of see the protagonist um, working through the uh, dilemmas of uh, race and class and sexuality, but he would be a labor union organizer and he would be showing the way forward. Um, Chester and the people that he was close to, uh, also including his brother, you know, I mean, they were definitely convinced that the thing that needed to take place was that you needed the Fair Employment Practices Commission that had been sort of inaugurated during the Second World War to open up the uh, war services industries so that African Americans could continue to build upon skilled labor positions in heavy industry, right? And to the 
long story short is that it, it, it collapsed, right? It did not happen. Uh, and then by the time even when it picks up speed, I mean, you know, give it uh, 15 years, give it 20 years, I mean, then American industrial labor patterns are, are completely shifting. Um, so it was a, in some ways, it was a, a, a sadness because it was a missed moment. When this book came out, um, Chester interestingly lost a friend, and uh, that was with Ralph Ellison. I, I, you know, just for sake of time, I have to sort of ask you to turn to the uh, to the biography. But that, to me, is like you know, I sort of enjoyed um, dealing with that because I've been working, you know, I worked for many years on project uh, devoted to Ralph Ellison, and it's interesting to see their relationship. Um, grow and build um you know i had the shot where they're spending thanksgiving together with their um, wives and uh then to see it uh absolutely unravel right where ellison basically is accusing him of for ellison it was it was a sort of a twining of artistic and intellectual dishonesty and maybe dishonesty is a little bit extreme but nonetheless Ellison wasn't impressed with him uh the caliber of the artist uh you know and he writes uh, several letters to friends like expressing himself and this is uh you know it's just a shot of Hamilton Terrace one of the places where Chester liked to live you know sort of the kind of the arts community uh near Sugar Hill or down the hill from Sugar Hill in Harlem um, and uh, you can see how seriously Ellison is taking himself, um, especially after the publication of Invisible Man and when he's a, a fellow at, uh, at the um, colony in Rome. Right. Um, and Chester responded by, uh, you know, also sort of lightly ridiculing, lightly satirizing Ellison in the novel Lonely Crusade itself, you know, where he sort of gives you Ellison in brief as a character, um, you know, who believed strenuously, you know, in Negro inferiority? Is <laughs> is very is 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 a very common kind of characterization that Ellison admitted to, right? That he owned up to. Like this is a conversation that we actually did have, you know. Um, so Chester uh, believed that he had this giant hit with the novel Only Crusade, and it turned out that instead you had people like really going out of their way to talk about how much they disliked the book. And he was devastated. And he'd been led to believe that the book would be very successful by the publisher, by his backers. Um, and I, like I say, I think it's a very important book. I think it's a very good book. But, um, but it was dismissed. And it caused him to begin to think of ways out um, that's a the shot of a hotel that he liked. Uh, the gentleman in the middle, you got Langston Hughes on, let's see, on on your left, Arna Bontemps on your right, and in the middle is Horace Caton. Um, Horace Caton loved Chester Himes's work, right? He thought that uh, Chester Himes was, you know, always right on the money, always somebody who, you know, sort of could be counted on. But what happens is that um, Chester Himes and Horace Caton, when you know, Himes sort of went through about five years that were quite lean. Um, he lost his marriage. Uh, he was unable, really struggled to support himself. And he's writing all the time, but you know, he can't quite get the publishers interested. And he, has, uh, he sells a couple of books. And so he and his girlfriend, um, he had a, uh, was in a sort of a torturous relationship with a woman named Vandy Haygood. They have a New Year's party, January 1st, 1953. 
Now, Ralph Ellison is riding really high, right, because after the April 1952 release of Invisible Man, everybody's been saying, you know, this is like the greatest, this is the greatest, you know, you're the smartest, you're the brightest, the best black writer ever, right, you know. It's a lot of that, and it's building up towards the uh, awarding of the National Book Award, which will take place in early 1953. And they have this party, and they haven't hung out in a long time, and as the story goes, and I encourage everybody to come join us, ask Steve Cannon this on September the 29th, uh, please put this down in your planners. We're having uh, Sonia Sanchez and Steve Cannon at uh, Hopkins uh, September the 29th from 4.30 to 6.30. They're going to be talking about archiving the black arts movement. But when Steve Cannon and Ishmael Reed and Quincy Troop interviewed Ellison in, uh, it's about, it's around 69, 70 or so, um, Ellison said that at this party, they start, he and Chesterheim started arguing, and Chesterheim stabbed him. <laughs> and he said Ellison would show him the scar. Now, both men were known to carry knives, right? So it's like this it's, you know, it's question of, you know, sort of what really happened. But um, nonetheless, at this party, Harry Caton was also at this, uh, you know, drunken bacchanal, perhaps, or something. And uh, he and Ellison are supposed to have both, you know, been saying to Chester Himes over and over again, look, man, you know, you've got to let this race thing go. Uh, you know, it's not all about race. It's not all about race. And that's sort of like one of the famous uh, uh, jibes back and forth between, um, you know, sort of the, the, the different groups. How well is America doing? You know, is it, is it possible to advance as a black person in America? Or are you always going to be, you know, sort of held back because of color? Because if you write about the color situation, you know, will you be able to make it? And Himes decided that it was time for him to leave the country after he got a little bit more money. And so he did. And he went to, um, I'm sorry, you can't see this one. You get a sense of like where he was in Paris. He preferred the left bank. Uh, Luxembourg Garden area. That's where a lot of the black writers were. William Gardner Smith from Philadelphia, Oliver Harrington, the cartoonist. <clears throat> Wright himself um, is in this area. Um, Richard Gibson, who is born, I think Richard Gibson is born in Maryland, but then uh, grows up in Philadelphia. I know that Gibson has uh, Maryland roots. Uh, you've got a lot of black writers going to Paris in the um, right leaving, of course, in 46, and then permanently in 47, Baldwin going in 49, Himes in 53, Harrington uh, at the end of the 40s. Um, you've got an exodus of uh, expatriate talent. Himes has his work translated abroad, um, and he completes what some people, and you know, at least at the time, what he thought of as you know, his most significant work, the third generation, uh, which is, you know, very much like a Romana Clef or, you know, it's an autobiographical novel uh, where he sort of charts in great detail his, uh, the fortunes, the life and fortunes of his family. Um, I have tried to produce sort of a kind of a literary critical kind of a reading of the, um, of the book, and maybe one day I will, I will finish that. But I do think it's fascinating the way that some of the things work in the novel, which is basically about the uh, sexual coming of age of the protagonist, of the Chester Himes-like uh, character, and the different kinds of associations that he makes between um, sort of like uh, catastrophe, orgasm, and women who remind him of his mother. It was, uh, Times was also like working through kind of a Freudian angle, again, really sort of hoping for a big hit.
and of course, if he, when the publishers were trying to get a blurb and trying to find out uh, what was the best way to sell the book, they said, hey, you know, Ralph Ellison, maybe you'll say something kind about this book, right? And so Ellison says, yeah, the third generation, this is like the best sociological uh, novel about the black family that's ever been written. And for Ellison to call it sociological is like saying it's a piece of garbage, right? I mean, you know, that's his, for him, that's his uh, sort of pet term. And so when Himes is living abroad, he, you know, at least at some point seems to have been very deeply involved with or in love with uh, Willa Thompson, who was kind of a um, social register, uh, kind of a woman from, from um, I want to say she grows up in Philadelphia, but then she has some New England roots. And um, they have sort of a torturous romance. Um, she writes him, you know, these... 10-page, single-space uh, letters and, you know, sort of every, you know, detail of their lives. And Chester Hires rewarded her fidelity, uh, I mean, um, not even trying to have play on words. Anyway, he rewarded her um, uh, 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 enjoyment of his time in 1955 um, by sort of saying in 1967 that, you know, I was able to, you know, sort of have these white women and to be with them, and that's that was, you know, that was that was like the best thing for me at the time. Chester was known for for using people, and certainly that was the point of view of, of people who knew him, like his brother, who thought that he was, you know, an unkind uh, person. Um, Chester also had sort of a falling out uh, with Richard Wright in the um, in the mid fifties. And one of the things that Chester's like claims to fame is that he is he is the eyewitness to the famous conversation in April of 1953 between Richard Wright and James Baldwin, where James Baldwin says it's supposed to have said the sons must slay their fathers, and that the reason why I've you know sort of come after you in these uh, uh, essays, uh, everybody's protest novel and many thousands gone, it's because you know you sort of written me out of existence and I have to destroy you so that I can have my own um, literary voice. Uh, there's a shot of William Gardner Smith, uh, Richard Gibson. Uh, Gibson was um, Gibson and Himes. They have a falling out. Gibson was thought to be a spy working for the Central Intelligence Agency and the Defense Department and the you know U.S. State Department. And uh, at one point, when Gibson, who uh, interestingly enough works for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, and then also. Uh, lives uh, for a time in uh, southern Africa and writes about uh, freedom struggles, uh, liberation struggles in southern Africa. And then sort of like at the end of the 1960s, Gibson calls up uh, Chester Himes in the Netherlands out of the blue, and Chester starts uh, his his, uh, common-law wife, Leslie, picks up the phone, and he starts cursing, you know, hang up on that uh, government agent and spy. Uh, I'm talking about Gibson. Gibson is the, is the last person of this group still living. And, uh, another one of the comments, Chester Himes. Uh, Himes always had this sort of interesting position for many American consumers of uh, novels dealing with uh, racial topics, he was the person who liked to talk about sex. And uh, when you have uh, the black men's magazine, Duke magazine from the middle 1950s, you know, they sort of uh, excerpted a portion of the third generation 
And they also were interested in this new novel that he had underway, this experimental novel, The Primitive, about the relationship between a black man and a white woman in an apartment building over a weekend. And they uh, even tried to depict it with some uh, sensual dancers uh, to give a sense of the um, salaciousness of uh, Chester Hobbs. And it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm winding up cause so we can have a moment for a little bit of a discussion or something, but Himes uh, had sort of his, sort of his finale to um, maybe not the fast life, but to the, um, uh, to, uh, let's say, domestic difficulties in his relationship with Regine Fisher, who was a German um, uh, actress, or she was studying acting in Paris, uh, in the mid-1950s, she had been the uh, lover of Oliver Harrington, and uh, they sort of fell together at the uh, Café, um, not at the Café du Tournon. Um, 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 did, I, did I write that book or, you know, not? What's it like? I need to remember the detail. But anyway, it's the, um, it's the popular café um, that they... Maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to look it up. But they... They agree to go out one night, and then they wind up sort of being with each other despite a lot of obstacles um, over several years. During this relationship, Himes begins to write the detective fiction for which he would become worldwide best known. And she writes him back in like December of 1956 after, this is shortly after she tried to commit suicide because she failed some examinations um, and she writes him back consoling him because he felt like he was sort of selling out to produce these works that were going to enable him you know basically to keep a roof over his head and you know sort of food on the plate and uh, she says you know it doesn't have to be cheap unless you think it's cheap and you know this could be you know sort of important literature and Himes goes on to uh, accept her point of view and he went on ultimately to think about these uh, mystery uh, detective fictions uh, featuring uh, Coffin Ed and Gravedigger, to go on to think about them as being significant contributions to uh, world literature and the, uh, you know, arguably like the strongest part of his literary tradition and works. And Marcel Duhamel was his editor at um, at Gallimard that helped to bring out uh, many of these um, uh, detective fictions. Um, Himes concluded his career with the, um, uh, or I would say, he concluded his career with the two-volume autobiography, The Quality of Hurt and My Life of Absurdity. And in that, maybe for the first time, he also did this in, in multiple interviews and sometimes even with long letters with people like John Williams and Hoyt Fuller. Uh, but in that very, very candid, uh, very, very honest um, uh, uh, way, Himes um, gave the truth to another generation of black writers. And that wound up having, I think, just sort of extraordinary ramifications with the works especially of um, Williams and uh, people like Ishmael Reed, who really, um, you know, sort of revered and were interested in recovering his uh, work and reputation for posterity. Okay, thank you.
Thank you very much. I, I just want to have two questions. Are there, is there a central location where Chester Himes' papers, it, it seems like you have a lot of documentation. And secondly, are there any of his family members still around? Right. Uh, to, so not that I'm aware of. Um, his mother's family, uh, you know, is uh, apparently, you know, still in North Carolina and South Carolina. I actually went to Stanford with a young woman who must have been, you know, sort of distantly related to him. She was still called Bomar and was still coming from or had roots going back to the Spartanburg area. Um, what happened is that in, in all of the people that I mentioned, none of them had children. Um, the uh, Henry Lee Moon and Molly Moon uh, have a daughter today, um, Molly Moon, who lives in New York, but um, not not really. And uh, that's um, you know sometimes it's sometimes it's very difficult to get the best information you know when you don't have any uh, sort of living sources. Uh, Chester Himes' materials are at the primarily at the Amistad Research Library Research Center at Tulane University in New Orleans. However, that collection, for whatever reason, um, it really only begins about 1954. Uh, Himes kept a chest, and he kept the letters and um, other important documents, some manuscripts and drafts. But they appear to have been lost during one of his, you know, trips or journeys in the early 1950s. Um, you know, maybe they will turn up, but they have not turned up so far. I mean, you know, what would be of special interest to me would be like this question of precisely how he begins writing in prison because he's supposed to have been writing his mother fairly regularly. And his brother, you know, his sibling, there's some sibling, strong sibling rivalry that goes on. But uh, his brother believed that it was really his mother's uh, push that um, began the writing career. But it seems like the way all this works out, it seems more like when his brother is beginning his career in Texas at a, um, at a college, that his mother was living with him and reading his materials and, you know, sort of helping him, uh, aiding in his sight, and that, you know, she sort of missed, chronologically missed Chester's launch. But it's not, it's not terribly well known the earliest extant letter uh, written to Chester Himes was written by a man named Prince Rico uh, with whom he had an amorous relationship in prison. And that is from 1936. That is when he's at the London prison farm about to be paroled, where his parole has just been announced. Yes, sir. Um, sure. So uh, in 1967, that's when they, um, Samuel B. Goldwyn Jr. acquired the option for um, uh, 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 Cotton Comes to Harlem. And he engaged Chester to begin working on a screenplay of that film. Uh, they went back and forth. It was an unsatisfactory relationship. Um, you know, he encouraged, for example, that you uh, eliminate uh, Coffin Ed. And, uh, you know, he always wanted to develop the white characters more because he felt like that would bring more of an audience in. As you know, these films, uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem, which came out in 1970, was spectacular because it begins the, it inaugurates the movement that shows the power of black audiences uh, attending cinema and making hits 
of black films. It is the it is the one that begins the trend, right? It is followed shortly thereafter by Shaft, uh, by uh, uh, Gordon Parks, and then by uh, Superfly by Gordon Parks Jr. Um, and then remember, all of these films, these films are rescuing the, the uh, cinemas, the, the, the film companies that produce them, right? They're losing money on all these other movies, but they're making so much money from the black films. That's what causes the NAACP to come up with the term black exploitation, and that's where exploitation, sorry, uh, is supposed to have, you know, sort of the, come from. So Himes uh, will, get, will come to the United States in 1970 to see the film. And the only comment um, that he makes that I'm aware of, and, you know, it's, I think it's important to bear in mind who he was talking to. It's sort of like his comrade and confidant. So he says to John Williams, um, nobody, no sane person could be proud of that film. Right? That's what he says. But, uh, um, you know, I think that, you know, we, we, we screened the film on Saturday. I think the film sort of, holds up pretty well over time. Uh, what he's talking about is the, um, again, you know, different ways that the film is being uh, maneuvered, uh, different kinds of uh, cuts that have to be made, um, and especially, uh, you know, perhaps uh, ways that some characteristics of the detectives, you know, were softened so that they could be more appealing to an audience. Uh, in the um, in the detective fictions, they are very very unsympathetic, unsentimental men. Once the thing you know has been filmed, it is sort of like it's fixed, right? And uh, all of the imaginary play that's so crucial in a work of fiction and a novel, you know, it, it, in, in in one way at least, is eliminated. Um, it is. I think that one of the key things to remember is that. When you look at this, this group of writers, but especially Ellison, Wright, Himes, and Baldwin, that uh, Himes is the person who has the films created, and especially during his lifetime. Uh, Ellison, you know, was very reluctant to, you know, release the rights um, to his film, but I don't know that he ever got such a serious offer. Francis Ford Coppola bought the rights to Lonely Crusade in... 1979, I think, and through the 1980s, you know, was uh, appeared to be on the verge of exercising the option and, you know, being prepared to try to shoot a film about Lonely Crusade. And then you have the case of Richard Wright, who sunk all of his money into producing a film version of Native Son. And I think that sometimes we get, or I would be a person who would say that we sort of get our history a little bit wrong when we just sort of remember Native Son as being ridiculous because Wright stars as Bigger Thomas. But that actually, uh, when you look, this film comes out in 1949. Remember, it has to be made in South America because you can't make the film in the United States in 1949. Uh, And that uh, when Wright, when you compare what Wright produced with Native Son in 1949 to the other films featuring black Americans prominently in 49, that then it holds up quite well. I mean, even, even Wright's performance, he was not a professional actor. Uh, he wanted Canada Lee to star in it, who was older, you know, 10 years older or five years older than Richard Wright. But um, all of the portraits of black Americans, too, it's important to remember, they kind of changed because of the, uh, these different civilian review boards 
of the uh, uh, film industry during the Second World War, right, where they are required to change the portraits, right? Because if you produce Cabin in the Sky, again, in 1945, the uh, uh, African-Americans are not taking those, uh, those portraits anymore. So it's, if it depending upon what you think about government censorship, I mean, we actually did have some very strong censorship that radically transformed uh, what was possible in terms of African-American portraiture and cinema uh, in the mid-1940s. So let me just expose, uh, so my colleague, uh, Pierre Cromoco, is uh, here with us today, uh, and uh, Dr. Cromoco and I taught at uh, the Alassane Watcher University in uh, Boaké, Côte d'Ivoire, uh, where he still um, teaches. Uh, living in Cote d'Ivoire today is uh, Bernard Dadier, who is, uh, understand, 103 years old. Uh, Bernard Dadier is the, well, he must be the, the, the oldest living person who, he did not attend the 1956 Congress of African Writers that took place in Paris that featured sensational addresses by Franz Fanon, uh, uh, Richard Wright, uh, remember that's covered by James Baldwin, um, and it is also attended by Chester Himes, who was living in Paris at that time. But um, Dadier is there in the summer of 56, and he talks about in his, um, in his uh, autobiography, um, uh, 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 Un Neg en Paris, uh, he talks about uh, going to a cafe on the left bank and being surveilled by French agents, right? And Bernard Dadier was um, somebody who was, like, he was in love with French culture, right? I mean, you know, he, in other words, he's not a, uh, a bomb thrower or uh, somebody who's trying to destabilize the government. He's not like Aimé Césaire, uh, a member of the Communist Party and about to become a uh, deputy member of, uh, you know, the French overseas uh, uh, department. Um, it, and, and so I just sort of, I'm trying to, I, I got some leads that I haven't been able to follow up on. Uh, uh, but I do think it's important uh, to understand um, a, a, a number of um, a number of uh, international dynamics at that point. Um, Chester Himes, there's a big gap in his FBI file. <clears throat> I applied for his uh, Central Intelligence Agency file, his um, State Department file. Um, th um, these things. There's a paper chase element involved in this, and sometimes it's difficult to sort of to win the day. Um, but there may be more, because there's a so there's a gap between roughly 1946 or so when they decided he wasn't a threat domestically, and then um, they pick him up shortly after the appearance of a Time magazine article um, that uh, is sort of prominently featuring Richard Gibson and is un was understood by the circle of that included Richard Wright and Oliver Harrington, which is understood as an example of um, uh, kind of a propaganda war where uh, the uh, Time Life magazine um, publishing apparatus that is headed by, you know, remember Harry Luce, who we will understand as being on the far right, of um, you know, sort of um, uh, 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 American politics, and that they they were um, attempting to silence these uh, black writers, and it's at that point that some of his surveillance begins again, and he's being surveilled at this point by the um, like 
U.S. Army intelligence uh, in Paris. Um, so for me, the subsequent death of Richard Wright um, around the time that uh, the powers that be are, you know, between the French, British, and American governments are aggressively plotting the demise by poisoning of uh, the Prime Minister of uh, the uh, Congo, Zaire, and uh, several uh, high-ranking, the French government at least, several high-ranking members of the Cameroonian uh, leftist government, two, two of whom are, are successfully poisoned, uh, Ruben Nayobe and, um, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the other person, like between 1959 and 61, um, the thing that I mentioned about Richard Gibson, which seemed to uh, involve the exposure of Oliver Harrington, Richard Gibson um, sends out a letter that is published by Life magazine in Oliver Harrington's name that would threaten the status of Oliver Harrington's passport. Uh, I just think that we're probably still pretty much on the surface of connecting um, some of these dots. And so there's some, there's some other things and maybe even some French sources that we could sort of deal with and look into, but we don't, we don't have anything more than that to go on right at this time. In the same way that we have maybe a flourishing industry on the conspiracies of uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King and other uh, you know, sort of American figures, um, there is always like some... Um, I, I think, you know, cachet that goes with the writer who says, oh, this definitely was not an example of conspiracy. I mean, this is what happens with the, um, the treatments of the death of Richard Wright. I mean, Richard Wright under, died under, you know, very odd circumstances or certainly fairly odd circumstances and was thought to have been uh, poisoned by Chester Himes and Oliver Harrington. That's the reason why I'm going into this because Himes is a great believer and promoter of the conspiracy, right? Um, but anyway... I, I think that there, you know, may be considerably more to be known. I, I, I was just, um, I, and I'm, I'm reading the stuff, you know, and you say, wow, I wish I had gotten that, you know, sort of before I finished that chapter, but I was reading the thing, the Devil's Chessboard piece. I think that's 2015, the Devil's Chessboard. And, you know, the writer is making an argument that, um, that somewhere in the combine of uh, the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department and the Dulles Brothers, that there's an aggressive attempt to uh, assassinate Charles de Gaulle. Now, if, the, uh, if they're you know, rogue powers <laughs> connected with our uh, government and military that were interested in the French president, I think that uh, the black writers probably small potatoes you know, sort of compared to that. Uh, thank you very much. Um,